DW Living Planet with Charlie Shield. Hello and welcome to Living Planet. Today on the show, we hear why Kenyan farmers are rejecting genetically modified seeds. We want to be growing our, our indigenous occurring seeds. Since they're healthy, they promote nutrition value of there and all that. We also head to Colombia to meet the biodiversity guardians protecting peace in the rainforest region of Caqueta. Before, we only thought about logging. We didn't know about the biodiversity that surrounds us here. Now we understand how our actions affect life in the forest and what extraordinary nature we have right here on our doorstep. And from Ghana, we learn what people are doing to protect the coastline before it's swallowed by the sea. So we are always afraid. We don't know what to do. But we are praying to God to help us to take us through all this situation. All that coming up. So stick around. As the effects of rising temperatures continue to change environments and lives in unexpected ways around the world, genetically modified seeds have been touted as one solution to curb its effects on food production. The idea is that by scientifically engineering seeds, such as wheat and corn, so they're better able to withstand higher temperatures, we can adapt to farming on a hotter planet. But in large parts of East Africa, a region battling drought and lower crop yields, these genetically modified seeds are banned. In Kenya, though, the new government has lifted that country's ban on GMO seeds, which was introduced by the previous administration. However, this move has garnered huge backlash from thousands of farmers, as well as agricultural organisations and food safety lobby groups. Victor Motori has more on the GMO tensions in Kenya. At Joseph Dika's farm in Kembebe village, Kirinyaka County, workers are busy harvesting the new variety of BT cotton. BT cotton is a genetically modified pest-resistant cotton plant which does not appeal to the bollworm, a pest that attacks crops. According to Dika, the new cottons are a game-changer in his life after the introduction of the crop one year ago by the government. This variety of BT cotton is very good, and we started planting it last year after it was imported. We find it more beneficial than the old one. This one takes five to four months to mature, but the previous one took nine months, so we have found out that even BT cotton's yield is very high. Two varieties of cotton, which have grown in Kenya for decades, Hat 89M and KCA81M produce low yields, leading to farmers in Carlos's. Thika says he ventured into the new genetically modified variety of cotton after receiving training from the Ministry of Agriculture officers. The day I was trained was when I decided to plant this variety. It's easy because after planting and weeding, you just wait for the harvest and take it to the market. This season I planted maize and I harvested nothing, but I am happy I will harvest the cotton. Again, we are waiting for another round of rain in October and April for the next season. East Africa and the Horn of Africa region has been affected by drought for five consecutive failed rain seasons, affecting more than 36.1 million people and millions of animals. So welcome to our fields. 
600 kilometers from Kirinyaga County, biotechnology experts are busy inspecting the genetically modified plants on a cassava farm at the Kenya Agricultural and Livestock Research Organization trial farms in Mutuapa, Kilifi County. This new variety of cassava can withstand disease and even drought. Catherine Otaga is one of the trainees. At the moment, I'm here to learn and also differentiate between the normal cassava and the ones which have been researched and modified. They have very beautiful plants. They're growing well, the color is normal, they're very healthy and their size is good, which will not result in losses for farmers. Varieties of cassava such as shibe, tajirika, karembo and zaluka have been grown in Kenya for a long time but have been recently producing poor yields for farmers. Climate change is decreasing food production due to rising temperatures and changing weather patterns and seasons. Drought and heavy precipitation events affect water resources and can erode soil and its nutrients. And the effects of climate change have started to be felt in Kenya. According to the Kenya National Bureau of Statistics, there are approximately 100,000 cassava farmers who produce over 1 million tons of cassava each year, but their production has declined due to climate change and diseases like the brown streak virus, which can reduce cassava root yields by up to 70%. Peter Mudiani, another trainee, points out that genetically modified cassava will be a game changer for food security in Kenya. GMOs are a solution to many problems such as climate change and diseases, so it's good to expand our minds together as a community and farmers. Without GMOs, we'll not be able to live in the future. We must decide to starve or embrace this technology. As long as we follow the established procedures for embracing this technology, there are organizations and departments making sure the crops will not harm people in the future. However, thousands of farmers in the country are void to continue using local seeds and are rejecting genetically modified organisms or GMOs in the name of protecting the environment and stopping biodiversity laws. Catherine Irungu, a farmer and a seed banker at Indeya Seashape Training Farm, says using local seeds promotes soil health by reducing chemical inputs. We are actually against the use of the GMO seed. We want to be growing our, our indigenous occurring seeds. Since they are healthy, they promote the nutrition value of the Since we don't apply some of those pesticides and uh, herbicides that are being promoted by, by the multinational companies, for us, we do make our own remedies, we do compost, we do the vermicompost and all that. In Kenya, 90% of seeds comes from the local seed system and approximately 70% of smallholder farmers depend on indigenous seeds compared to other places like the US and countries in Latin America where GMO use is high among both large and small scale farmers. Last year, Kenya's new government lifted a ban on the importation of GMOs which was imposed 10 years ago. The ban was originally enacted by the cabinet following claims that GMOs were a threat to the health based on a study with rats that was conducted in France. The study was later debunked by European scientists.
the government is now planning to import 11 tons of genetically modified maize seeds to curb a food shortage that is affecting an estimated 5.1 million Kenyans in the arid and semi-arid areas of the country. However, some farmers want to hear none of it. Daniel Kinudia is a farmer at Deru village, Kiambu County. As an organic farmer, I would say that we should reject GMO seeds completely. Because this is something we are being introduced to that we don't know anything about. The previous government rejected these seeds, yet the current government is advocating for them. Why? Organic farming organizations are opposed to the move by the government to allow genetic foods in the country. Anne Miner from the Biosafety Association of Kenya explains. We are not for genetically modified foods and call on the government every time to have the precautionary principle where we are clear on the issues and have an open mind so that uh, we can also promote what we call agroecology which looks at more of production of food in an ecological way. Kenya currently stands as the only country in the region that allows for the importation of genetically modified seeds and foods. Tanzania, Uganda and Burundi have not yet opened up to genetically modified seeds and products. Uganda remains cautious about the use of such seeds, while Burundi maintains complete opposition to the importation of genetically modified products and seeds due to safety concerns. For DW, this is Victor Moturi in Kiambu County, Kenya. For farmers on the other side of the African continent, in Ghana, the consequences of rising temperatures are just as acute. They're battling extreme heat, drought, flooding, and as we'll hear about in this next story, increasing coastal erosion that's eating away at the country's coastline where many people live, work and farm. Currently, Ghana's coastline is eroding at an average rate of two metres per year. But some smaller sites have recorded up to 17 metres in a single year. As Isaac Kaledzi found out, though, global heating isn't the only contributing factor here. His story is presented by Wenjiku Mwara. Blue waves lap lazily along the shores of Ghana's east coast. It's a pristine scene, but for Peter Akoli, it's anything but. This ocean has swallowed up everything he once owned. When he looks out into the waves, he sees the place he used to call home, a kilometer from where he currently stands. Almost a year after he was displaced, the fisherman is still traumatized. I lost eight, eight bedroom house with a kitchen, toilet and bath. It's deep inside the sea over here. Near constant tidal waves have wrecked havoc in communities like Fuveme, Peter Akoli's former home. The brick ruins of former houses, schools and community centers now litter the shoreline. Most of the roofs have been torn off. Household items that once swept away have been ruined and abandoned. Hundreds of people were displaced and many families are still homeless. Ghana's coastline spans more than 500 kilometers. A quarter of its population live by the sea. According to a UNESCO study, almost 40% of Ghana's east coastal land was lost to erosion and flooding between 2005 and 2017. And the destruction is only getting worse, raising the alarm among environmental activists and coastal erosion experts, including Kwaesi Apianing Ado from the University of Ghana. Sea level is rising. 
And once the sea level is rising, associated issues with sea level rise, coastal erosion, flooding, and then we could also talk about uh, saltwater intrusion. So the saltwater intrusion could affect, you know, agriculture within these areas. Fuveme, Keta, and 15 other communities along the coast of Ghana's Volta region used to be prosperous fishing villages, but sea erosion has put an end to that. The once bustling local markets are now unnervingly quiet. You'd be lucky to find decent fresh fish for sale here. Other food produce is also in short supply. Even the farmlands are succumbing to the sea, with paddles now springing up in the once mostly dry fields. But climate change isn't solely to blame for coastal erosion. Human activities like excessive groundwater extraction for use in farming is on the rise. Sand mining, where locals harvest sand from the shores for building, is also an issue. Some communities have banned the practice, but it's still prevalent enough to cause damage. Finally, trees, especially mangroves, that play a key role in protecting the coastline and marine wildlife are being cut down for firewood. Local leaders like Senya Awusa are worried about the future of their communities and are working to change these once accepted practices. We have a role to play because it is we are close to the where the things have been. And with that is in the snatic and dam. Because even if somebody from somewhere have come and started with something, we have to implement what is about to. For instance, like as you say, the Sanwini, if the people reset and they get to know that the Sanwini is causing the erosion, if we are the leader in the community people, if we don't put this to the action, if we don't stop, it will definitely cause us a problem. Researchers from the University of Ghana's Institute for Environmental and Sanitation Studies have been studying the impact of climate change along the coastline for more than two years. They take samples of water, fish and plants for further studies. Dizo Irenya Tawaiya from the University's Institute of Environmental and Sanitation Studies warns that sea erosion isn't just affecting the coast. It's also endangering wildlife species in nearby lagoons and local people's health. From a public health perspective, once the water flows and destroys sanitation facilities, for instance, in households that are very close to the sea, these sanitation facilities contaminate drinking water sources. In an effort to protect communities against the rising sea levels, the government has built stone seawalls along parts of the shoreline. But it says it lacks the fund to protect the country's entire coastline. That's very bad news for coastal residents like Peter Akoli, as the likelihood for future flooding events remains high. He has given up any hope of rebuilding his home for now. We are still afraid. Because now, where the sea is now, it's just a stone throne from the first time. So we are always afraid. We don't know what to do. But we are praying to God to help us to take us through all this situation. Peter Akoli and his family now live in a makeshift community with about 300 other displaced families. Rows of identical palm leaf structures line the sand as residents try to go about their daily lives. As fishermen, they don't have the option to simply leave the coast behind and relocate inland. But it's a risky game. What little they have could once again end up washed up by the ocean when the floods return.
This is Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. We'll be back in a moment. Nazi here from the Don't Hold Back podcast. Join me and my guests as we tackle taboo topics. No one actually opens out to say there's this mental illness that's Correct. currently happening and these are the symptoms and this is what you look out for. My mom is a 73-year-old. Um, if I had to say to her now, I'm depressed. Ay, 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 ay. Can you go and eat? <laughs> you know, go and eat. She's going to buy fried chicken. And she's going to do this because she doesn't understand what mental health is. I was literally leaving work early because I was like, I want to get home and have my glass of wine. That was all I could think about. We tell uplifting stories from overcoming depression to caring for oneself in this insanely complicated world. There's just one rule. Everyone brings a snack that means something extra special to them. Don't Hold Back is a monthly podcast from Daicha Vela, Jacaranda FM and East Coast Radio. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. From East and West Africa, we now turn to South America, where people in one of Colombia's most conflict-ridden zones, the rainforest region of Caqueta, are setting aside their cocoa cultivation skills to learn how to become guardians of biodiversity. For many years, inhabitants of this region could barely move freely, trapped by the conflict between armed forces. Most had no choice but to farm coca, the main ingredient in cocaine, to make a living. Since the peace process in 2016, though, that's been slowly changing. And a hairbag has more, presented by Evelyn McClafferty. In a four-wheel drive car, we travel over gravel roads deep into the rainforest until the road becomes so steep that we can only continue on foot and by mule. Smallholder farmers, technical assistants and employees from the World Wildlife Fund, or WWF, are on the road in the Alto Fragua Indi Wasi National Park in the near impassable Cocota region of southwestern Colombia. It's still early and foggy, light rain is falling and suddenly one of the farmers stops in his tracks. This is the farm where I grew up. This was all coca, all the grass here. Alexander Jimenez is 28. Almost his entire life has been spent in the shadow of war. That's because the jungle of Kakata was the heartland of the FARC guerrillas, who also controlled the drug trade there. Growing coca plants, the active ingredient for cocaine, was the only way for most families to survive at that time. They could not move away freely. Living in the forest meant danger. Now, however, Alexander is trudging through the forest in rubber boots, looking for suitable places to set up a camera trap. His goal, to observe wild animals and to protect their habitats. So we understand that this area here is not just hills and forest. It's a complex habitat that we share with other creatures. The view of things is completely changing. He and other small farmers in the region who have suffered from Colombia's armed conflict are gaining a new perspective, protecting biodiversity, practicing sustainable agriculture instead of deforestation and coca cultivation. Protected Areas and Peace is the name of the project, which is led by the World Wildlife Fund. But at the beginning, no one wanted to take part, says John Jadder Moscara from the regional partner organisation Cordes Barra. 
The first reaction of the families is usually negative. Why should I limit my grazing areas, they ask, then I'll have less to eat. But when someone from our technical team comes, we always explain to them that they can just try it. And if it doesn't work out well, you can undo it. The problem here is trust. Most people in this area have been let down too many times by the state or other organisations. This happened most blatantly when the Colombian government made them an offer to give up their coca plants in exchange for legal crops. The substitution programme was part of the 2016 peace deal with the FARC, as smallholder farmer Plutarco Garcia remembers. We said all right, we'll go along with it. We started pulling out the plants, we signed papers. But the government has not fulfilled its part. To this day, it has not fulfilled its promises to many families. The money for the conservation failed to materialise. Many have since returned to coca cultivation. Plutarco Garcia, however, has not. But with legal cultivation and the few cattle he keeps, he does not earn enough to send one child to school in the village. As part of the World Wildlife Fund project, he has now received technical assistance that will enable him to farm more sustainably and cheaply. Less chemicals, alternate use of small pastures, solar panels and a small sugarcane mill. He'll also get further training on how to become a biodiversity guardian. Before, we only thought about logging. We didn't know about the biodiversity that surrounds us here. Now we understand how our actions affect life in the forest and what extraordinary nature we have right here on our doorstep. At a spot where the current is weak and many animals can easily cross the stream, his colleague Jimenez is tying a camera trap to a thick tree. It's his dream to one day photograph a jaguar. They always say that the jaguar is dangerous, but that's a myth. Now that we are learning more about our environment, we understand that actually we are the dangerous ones because we are taking away their territories. For many years, nature conservation in Colombia was carried out without local people, meaning that many long-standing residents were often resettled or even forcibly displaced in order to establish so-called protected areas. And the World Wildlife Fund has also been criticised for doing this. This project in Kakata now wants to do better. And maybe it could be applied elsewhere, in other countries, say, for instance, regions where the Amazon rainforest covers. But unfortunately, that's not necessarily the case, says Cesar Soeres, a coordinator at WWF Colombia. In the protected area where we are today, deforestation happens on a small scale, unlike, say, in the lower Amazon, where it's a huge business. There, it's not about the small farmer who wants a little bit of land. It's about big landowners and politicians who are greedy, who just want more and more. Farmer Plutarco Garcia simply wants to stay where he spent his entire life. And this project helps him and his family imagine just that. The climate, the air, the nature, everything is beautiful. Where should I go? There's no better life out there. So why should I leave here?
And to end the show today, we're switching from rainforests, coastlines and farms to the indoors to take a peek inside an eco-apartment in the Swiss city of Zurich that has been crafted entirely from recycled materials. That includes the bathroom walls, kitchen countertops and every single piece of furniture. Sound intriguing? Here's Anna-Sophie Prendlin with reporting by Katrin Hondl. Every city is home to some treasures that usually remain undiscovered because people would prefer to throw them out. Take construction rubble, discarded glass or household waste, for example. Most of us would not want to collect that, but the concept of urban mining takes these hidden gems and turns what many people consider trash into valuable sources of raw materials. As they say, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Enrico Marchesi is someone that knows that all too well. He works as the innovation manager at the Swiss Federal Laboratory for Materials Science and Technology, or EMPA for short. The concept of the urban mine, as the name already suggests, has to do with the city. The city becomes a warehouse for materials, and we no longer take materials from natural mines, but instead find them around the city, the urban mine. A good example of how a city can become a treasure trove of raw materials, especially for construction, is an apartment that was created by the EMPA Research Institute in Dübendorf, close to Zurich. It's called the Urban Mining and Recycling Experimental Unit. This urban mining and recycling experimental unit really checks all the requirements that a building has. It comes down to the kinds of materials that are being used. We used recycled and recyclable things. But it also has to do with the way it was constructed. To put it simply, you have to construct buildings in such a way that they can be easily and cheaply dismantled into single materials again. And here, we managed to do that virtually 100% for the first time in this apartment. Take the brick wall, for instance, which separates the open kitchen from the living room. The bricks are not cemented. Instead, they are beaded onto metallic rods. That means the wall can easily be deconstructed again for new projects. And even the bricks themselves have history. They are regular bricks, but the material has been recycled from buildings. There are buildings made from cement, brick and stonework. And there's a company that has created a process in which they collect the materials, crush it and make new bricks out of it again. Everything in this apartment is recycled and can be recycled again. And nothing has been coated, colored or glued. And it even looks incredible, especially the walls in the bathroom and the kitchen countertops, which are made from bright glass ceramics. And here, with the lighting, you can see how beautiful the material actually looks. Enrico Marchesi glides his hands over the soft, shiny recycled material. This is a glass top that is produced from scrap glass. You can still see the individual pieces of glass inside. And the production process is very energy efficient because the glass won't be completely melted but instead only heated up to the point that you can press a countertop from it. So this process recycles trash, needs little energy and creates a great product. The curtains in this apartment look fancy as well. They're made from cellulose and are compostable. The walls are stuffed with old jeans that are noise and heat insulating. The Swiss researchers want to show people that building and furnishing a home using completely recycled and recyclable materials is not only possible for homeowners, but also affordable. It's not more expensive. It's all about how much is implemented. 
If I only do it selectively, and we can prove that here with our projects, then I can build cost neutrally and be more sustainable. The Urban Mining and Recycling Experimental Unit is a circular economy laboratory of sorts. Living here is being tested too. And apparently, the living is easy in a home forged from recycled trash. The apartment is always occupied by young people. Students in shared living are there right now, and they think it's great. We've only gotten positive feedback. They feel at home there, and they really like it. That's it for our show today. But you can find more DW Environment coverage at dw.com slash environment. And for more Living Planet, make sure to subscribe to our feed in any podcasting app that you're using if you haven't done so already. Thanks this week to Vibke Tegdmeier and Simon Berghahn in the studio. I'm Charlie Shield. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe. <laughs>